Your Bibles, please, for our first scripture reading, our New Testament reading to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For I would that ye knew what a great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and, and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, 
not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So we divide this chapter into several sections. The first is verses 1 through 3. And he speaks of the great conflict that he has for the Colossians and for them at Laodicea. And then also for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So notice that Paul was not limited in his affection and care simply to those churches that he had ministered to personally. We have uh, Paul's great concern. What he will tell the Corinthians is the anxiety that presses upon him concerning all the churches daily. And so Paul carries, if you will, in his bosom as an apostle and being, uh, being responsible in the first century in that apostolic office for the establishment, the biblical establishment of churches. And remember that although he had never been to Laodicea, he certainly was uh, in Ephesus and that, there was, that Ephesus was a hub both to the east and to the west, right? That uh, across the Aegean Sea, uh, Ephesus was in close communication with Corinth and then to the east, that would have been uh, to Laodicea and also to Colossae. And so while, uh, while the church at Ephesus was indeed established by Paul, these other churches that spun out of Ephesus, Paul bore a particular responsibility toward. And so he prayed for them and he cared for them and he wrote to them and so on. So why did he do so? What is the conflict that he has? He desires that their hearts might be comforted, knit together in love, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And so notice that his desire for them is big. It's very big, very large. That they would be knit together in a full assurance of understanding. Beloved, Assurance is not apart from understanding. It comes with understanding. It is learning the doctrines of of the Bible. Ignorance is not bliss with regard to the scriptures. We want to know as much as we can. We want to gather as much from the scriptures as our little brains, our little minds will enable us or will, will take in. So that we might have that greater, that growing assurance. This is what Paul talks about here. And if we put it in the context of what he writes of here in Colossians chapter 2, he's going to draw them away from an improper Christology to a proper Christology to add to that assurance of theirs. Right? Okay, so let's remember that. It's not only by his presence... It is by the efficacy of Christ that he desires these things. It's not just by his letter, but that his letter might be a goad to them. To continue in their growth of understanding. Their growth in understanding, if you will. Then he will say, in Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And here again, as we saw in chapter 1, now also in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is laying the axe to the root of the proto-Gnosticism that had risen up in the Colossian church. That he would say of Christ 
that in him are all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What he's saying is turn away from those false guides that would turn you to magic angels and incantations and other knowledge falsely so-called that they may draw you to a closer communion with the unknowable God and turn to Christ instead. Because in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Beloved, if we know Christ, we have access to everything. There is nothing beyond him. All right, so now in verse 4. And this I say, he begins this section, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Remember that those enticing words are not limited to the first century. That there are enticing words that happen even today. That would draw folks off of the the sufficiency that is in Christ. That even in otherwise uh, nominally reformed churches, there are men telling us today... That, for instance, these enticing words, that at the end of days, when you stand before the Lord, he will judge you as to whether or not you've been faithful to the covenant. I hope not. And you should hope not as well. Because faithfulness to the covenant is indeed unreachable to us. We are unprofitable servants. Every good work that has come into our hands as we read in our section on the confession today that we're studying is tainted and imperfect and cannot endure the scrutiny of God's righteous judgment. Beguiling words are, or enticing words are uh, present in every age of the church. And so Paul rejoices over their good order and the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. So then he will will make this famous statement, as ye have received Christ Jesus, walk ye in him. Now, some have maybe made that a little too simple. Uh, You receive Christ Jesus by faith, so walk by faith. Okay, but let's fill up faith with the right content. Let's do that too, right? Because Paul will present Christ as the object of their faith, as the ground and confidence, as the cause of our thanksgiving, as a guide for our walk, as the fullness and substance of the Godhead, as opposed to emptiness and vanity, our great supply, the only source of our necessities, the ultimate authority, the sanctification of the believer, and the power of the new life. These are the kinds of things that must fill up our walk in Christ. So Paul makes that very, very full. And doesn't that make sense? Since he's already said that in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he uses that Greek word pleroma there. And that was a code word. That was a dog whistle word. That's the term we all use today, right? It's a dog whistle. What does a dog whistle mean? Only dogs can hear it, right? So you blow the whistle, human beings don't hear it, but dogs hear it and they come running. They hear something that other people don't hear. The, the protonostics, when they heard that word pleroma, they thought of the ultimate divinity that was unknowable, the fullness. Unknowable, Paul says? No. The fullness, the pleroma of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. He's not unknowable. And so this, the full and unmitigated deity of Christ is preached here. Um, 
For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is verse 9. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Again, Gnostics are always talking about levels of angels, principalities and powers and so on. Christ is the head of all of that, Paul says. If we know Christ, we have everything we need in him. We are complete in him. All right, so you'll remember then that at the beginning of the book, we, we said that this is, this is a Christocentric book. Paul is advertising here. He is preaching and he is pressing not only to the Colossians and Laodiceans and Ephesians, but to us as well. The fullness of Christ's person. He is a human being, yes, but he is very God. He is true God. Yes, the incarnation is a difficult doctrine. It's simple, however, in the statement of it, isn't it? That Jesus Christ is God and is man. And that we have one Christ, not two. And so in him then, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Well, this takes us down to verse 11 then. In him, therefore... Paul will say, uh, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Okay, but we know what that is, right? Paul is talking Old Testament language here. Remember that proto-Gnosticism first rose up among Jews. And so, what are we looking at here? That circumcision of the heart that is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and Jeremiah chapter 4. You are circumcised, but it's in Christ that you're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. There is a Christian circumcision, if you will. What is that Christian circumcision? Being buried with him in baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with him. Through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So we are united to Christ then by this Christian circumcision. Or as Paul will put it in Romans chapter 6. We are united to Christ in the likeness of his death. And in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? We, and that is not just future. That is now. And so the old man has been co-crucified with Christ and we are risen with him through the operation of God who has raised up Christ from the dead and raised us up with Christ and caused us to sit in heavenly places with Christ. Is how he said it in Ephesians. And this is a part of what it means to be baptized. Because baptism really gives up its sign for the thing signified. And what is the thing signified? signified the thing signified is exactly what paul spoke of here that in our souls we are raised with christ we are indeed given life from the dead walking in newness of life this is what circumcision in the old testament pointed to that circumcision without hands and then also baptism in the new testament paul brings circumcision and baptism here together in colossians 2 12 Uh, 11 and 12, 
uh, to show us that, that both circumcision and baptism pointed to the same thing. Now that sign had become perverse in the first century. Second Temple Judaism had become a, mer- a merit religion. And so circumcision then had come to be identified with merit religion as well. The Lord then instituted baptism, another familiar sign to Old Testament saints, that of washing, that they might then understand what it meant to be washed from their filth, their iniquity, and to be cleansed or raised up and caused to sit with Christ. So, baptism and circumcision point to the same things. In the Old Testament circumcision, in the New Testament baptism, Namely, regeneration. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man, truly in the heart. Beloved, let me just say it this way. We don't know. We don't have those kinds of of senses that we can see who has truly been circumcised in the heart, as Paul will say at the end of Romans chapter 2 and here. Who has truly been baptized by the Spirit of God. But we can see who has been baptized outwardly. We can see that. There is only one baptism. We don't want to distinguish between the baptism uh, that we do as a sacrament of the church and the baptism that takes place secretly and inwardly by the Spirit of God. We don't want to distinguish so much between those two that we think there is only uh, or that there are two baptisms. Think of the one as a sign that points to the other, the true. So we don't want to downplay or devalue that which is outward and focus only on the inward. That would make us pietists. We don't want to value the outward to the devaluing of the inward. That would make us sacerdotalists. We don't want either one of those. We want that scriptural understanding where Paul will say to the Colossians, I'm sorry, to the Galatians, those of you who have been been baptized with Christ have put on Christ. And there is a visible way that that's done. And we pray that it's pointing to the inward reality. But we don't make baptism a regenerating sign, but we do make it a sign of regeneration. All right, with that then, uh, verse, verses uh, 13 and 14, we have that, uh, that regeneration spoken of once again. And it's spoken of here in different terms. Being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. And I, I, I want to make sure that we see the difference here between what Paul says here and what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. Some theologians have tried to marry these things because they are stated in a parallel way in two parallel books, Ephesians and Colossians. But Paul is saying something entirely different here than he said in the, uh, to the Ephesians. When he, when he spoke to the Ephesians, he spoke about the handwriting of ordinances which separated Jews from Gentiles. And he said those were nailed to the cross. Here he says it is all of the indictment of the violated law that is nailed to the cross. 
So here he is talking about regeneration and the forgiveness of sins. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he was speaking there of the separation between Jews and Gentiles and the ceremonial law. So they are two different things, although they are stated in a parallel fashion and in two parallel books. But we must make the distinction that Paul makes here. And he says that when the Lord did that, when he nailed our sins to Christ's cross and punished them there with Christ, right? That he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in that victory. What did he mean by that? That he delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So here we speak of regeneration. There we spoke of, uh, of uh, the separation between Jews and Gentiles that had been torn down by the cross of Christ. So when Christ died, he did two things. He tore down the ceremonies that separated Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because he fulfilled them all. Those ceremonies kept Jews and Gentiles separated. But the other thing that he did was he died for our sins. I mean, how, how terrible would it be that the only thing Christ did was to tear down the difference between Jews and Gentiles? No, 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 no. Not just that. He also satisfied divine justice for our sins. That too. Okay, so, so then verse 16, because those rudiments are torn down, because that fleshly ideal that we all followed at one time in our lives has been nailed to the cross, then let no man judge you in meat, drink, new moon, holy day, and so on. And Paul will take two steps here. In the first step, he will speak against Judaistic uh, remnants, shadows he will call them. Uh, what are the shadows? Notice, um, meat or drink, that is in the dietary restrictions, the dietary mosaic restrictions, in respect of an holy day. What holy day? Any of the holy days of the Old Testament that pointed to Christ. Right? Tabernacles, booths, right? Or uh, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, first fruits, if you will. The Passover, Yom Kippur, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All of those times when the people of God uh, were or were not required to appear before God so that some sacrifice was offered and so on. All of those holy days are done away with. They're gone. And then notice, uh, or or the new moon, that was another holy day every month. They blew two silver trumpets over a a new sacrifice or of the Sabbaths, literally. And by Sabbaths there, we don't think of the fourth commandment and the, the, uh, the weekly Sabbath. We think of all of those other days that were accounted Sabbaths because there was no servile work done in them. They were a part of the celebration of the holy days. All of those are also passed away. And notice what Paul says, they are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And that's why they're gone. Because Christ the substance has come. And so beloved, you, maybe some of you have Christian friends that want to you know, celebrate a Passover Seder in their homes. Because you know, that's a good thing to do. It's not. It's not a good thing to do. 
It's not a commanded order of worship. It is passed away. If we were standing outside in a bright sunny day and I turned away from you and began to speak to your shadow, you'd think that was odd, if not insulting. Well, when we celebrate such things, we celebrate shadows rather than the substance. We must turn away from the shadows and turn to the substance, Christ. And then he will take the second step here in verse 18, and he will speak against Gnosticism, the proto-Gnosticism that had arisen, and listen to its tenets. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility, that is asceticism. Asceticism is, you know, I'm going to fast now because that will make me holy. Uh, I'm going to uh, whip myself because that will make me holy. Um, Or worship of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. You see, Paul brings out the futility of that system and he sarcastically lays it to rest. This is secret knowledge. How do you claim to know it? No, you're vainly puffed up in your fleshly mind. That's how you know it. These things are fleshly things. They're not spiritual things, although you claim them to be so. And where do they come? They come from not holding to the head, Christ. And so, um, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, that is, these fleshly things, why then, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances like touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish after the commandments and doctrines of men. And we've heard that before, haven't we? They always, those commandments and doctrines of men, push out the doctrine of God, don't they? And, but they do have something. They have a show of wisdom. It's a show of wisdom in will worship. And this is, Paul coins a word here, and thankfully this word has has remained in the English language, will worship. It means devotion to God based on your preference. Devotion to God based on your will, on your own pleasure or desire. Will worship. This is why it's weird when you see (laughs) on websites the rating of the church. We're going to rate the church, right? Four stars or maybe five, right? How do you rate things? You rate them according to your pleasures, your desires. What is that? That's will worship. Those things have no, no, uh, no use. They're not in any honor, and there's an ellipsis here, only to the satisfying of the flesh. That's it. That's all they do. These extra ceremonies and good feelings that they bring up. Listen to, I think it was not this last end of year, but the year before that, four sermons on the holiday season. And in one of those sermons, we talked about that good feeling that we're all pursuing in that. Right? That warm, fuzzy, cinnamony, hot chocolatey feel. That's what we're after in our Christmas, candlelight Christmas service. We're after that that feeling, and we want to make sure that our children get that feeling too. What is that? That's the feeling that pushes out the right worship of God. That's the feeling that 
is that will worship. That worshiping according to good feelings instead. It's not in any honor. It only satisfies the flesh. And that's why we must turn away from it. And instead we want to, verse 19, hold fast the head. All right? Okay, with that then let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.